Our scripture reading for this morning is from the book of James, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, because you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. May God bless his read, this reading of his holy word. Let's pray together as we unfold the scriptures. O oh Lord, our God, we bless and thank you for the gift of your word. I grant your servant both the humility and the boldness necessary to preach it. Prepare our hearts and lives to be strengthened and changed by your word. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Uh, it's great to see you all. Um, everybody geared up for the hurricane? I heard it's not going to be as bad as they're saying, so I hope that's the case. Um, this morning, we are starting a new series. We uh, spent the past four weeks looking at three stories out of Luke 15. Uh, we're going to change gears, and we're going to spend some time with the book of James. James is a letter. It's in your Bible. It's almost all the way towards the end if you're looking for it. Just start at the very end and flip forward like five books or so, and you'll find it. It's short. It's only five chapters, and it's a letter. It's a letter written by a man named James to early Christians. Uh, in fact, it's so early, some, some people think that of all the 27 books in the New Testament, that James was the first one written. We don't know that for sure. But it might have been written, some scholars think it was written only 10 or 15 years after Jesus died and rose again. So this is really, really early. And you can imagine, if it's only 10 or 15 years after Jesus has died and rose from the dead, you have a group of people who claim to follow this man. They're probably not even called Christians. That term came about later. And they're trying to figure out what it means, and they have some, some vague sense of what they should do, and there are some people leading this really small movement who claim to have been with him for three years, so you're taking some cues from them. There's a lot of oral tradition. Well, I heard this, and I heard that, and, but it's hard to know, like, what does it actually mean to follow this man? That's what James is trying to answer here, and he really writes to answer one overarching question. So this is the structure of the whole series. He, he, he writes to answer this. What does it mean to become a mature Christian? to a group of very early Christians who really are kind of winging it. They're trying to figure it out as they go along. And that's no discredit to them. They're they're doing the best they can with what they have. James starts to introduce some structure and say, what does it mean to be a mature Christian? Here's what it looks like to grow in your faith. Uh, This theme occurs other places in scriptures. There's a helpful image that the author of Hebrews uses right before James. Uh, The author of Hebrews in Hebrews 5 says, You can't just go around drinking milk all your life. Like at some point, you've got to start eating meat. He says, grow from milk to meat, from spiritual infancy to being a spiritual grown-up, so to speak. That's kind of what James is getting at here. Uh, In fact, funny little thought, there are some churches, bigger churches especially, they do these big campaigns for sermon series, and they have a clever title and tagline and really slick you know, images and graphics and banners and videos that go along with it. And they always have a name, and I thought, if I, were, if I were in one of those churches, we might call this series Grow Up. What does it mean to grow up in our faith? 
Because James is all about growth and maturity. Now, growth and maturity take time. We know that. There's no shortcut. And because growth and maturity take time, we're going to take our time in James. Originally, my plan was to try to cover the book in seven weeks. Now, that's, that's quick. And it started to feel almost like trying to eat a steak in seven minutes. Like, you imagine sitting down to a big steak dinner and thinking, I've got seven minutes, start the clock, go. Eat your whatever, 12-ounce ribeye because a ribeye is the best cut of meat you can get. A 12-ounce ribeye in seven minutes with the potato and whatever else comes with it. You could, right? Like, if you really put your mind to it, you probably could. But why would you want to? The whole point of that dinner, of sitting down to a nice steak dinner, is to linger and to savor it and to enjoy it, to get as much flavor as you possibly can out of it. If you rush through it, you'll miss out. You'll miss out. You'll probably get indigestion. So just like like eating a good steak dinner, we're going to take our time in James. And we'll see that under the umbrella of growing to maturity, James really focuses on three themes, and he repeats them a number of times. The first is perseverance in trial. So he says a mature Christian is somebody who perseveres in hard times. You heard that during the reading this morning. When he says, consider it joy when you experience trials and temptations of many kinds. Joy. What does that look like? A mature Christian is someone who perseveres in hard times. Secondly, a a mature Christian is someone who pursues wisdom. They pursue wisdom. They're not just making it up themselves as they go along, but they're looking for standards of wisdom to apply their lives to. And thirdly, a mature Christian has a healthy perspective about wealth. A healthy perspective about wealth. They persevere, they pursue wisdom, and they have a healthy perspective in wealth. Now, that's not to say that you get those three down and and that's all there is to it. But remember, for for a group of early Christians who are starting to really put wheels on this bus and figure out how do we get moving, how do we grow to maturity, these are three very important themes. And in all three of those, we see this one thread that weaves and links all of them together. The one lens in in every word of James is this, humility. In all things, we persevere in humility, we pursue wisdom in humility, and we have a humble perspective about wealth. In all things, James says, a Christian, as they grow to maturity, exhibits more and more humility. That's what we're really going to look at this morning, is that one overarching theme, and then we'll start applying it over the coming weeks. First, we've got to ask this. Who is James? Who is he? Uh, if, you've read, if you've read your Bible, if you've read your New Testament, you've seen the name James pop up a few times, not just in this letter, but in the Gospels and the stories of Jesus' life. You've seen that there are a lot of Jameses. In fact, we know of at least three people named James in the New Testament. This gets confusing. Jesus has 12 followers, and two of them are named James. So they're probably even struggling to keep it straight. One of them, tradition, this is kind of funny, uh, tradition says that one of them is called James the Great and one of them is called James the Lesser. How would you like to be James the Lesser? Well, at least I'm one of the 12. Uh, how would, <laughs> so you have two Jameses who are following Jesus. If you've ever, um, some of you are watching this series, The Chosen, uh, this TV series about the life of Jesus. Jamie and I have been watching it over the past month or two. 
Uh, it's moving. In The Chosen, they call them Big James and Little James, which, which is a nice way of capturing it. There's those two. There's another James, traditionally known as Jesus' brother, um, probably properly speaking his half-brother, right? Because Mary and, and, and uh, Joseph were his, James's parents, but Joseph didn't contribute to Jesus, so to speak. <laughs> uh, so Jesus' half-brother, James, would have grown up with him in all likelihood. Now, we don't know exactly who wrote James. Was it one of the two who were Jesus' 12? Was it Jesus' half-brother? Maybe it was somebody else just claiming to be James, using his name to get people to trust him. We don't know for sure. Most scholars, at least the ones that I read and really trust, think it was Jesus' half-brother. Why do I tell you that? Is that just trivia? No, that really matters, actually, and here's why. A couple reasons. First, uh, if, you, if you remember back to Mark chapter 3, think way back to Mark chapter 3. I had to look it up, too. Don't worry. Uh, in Mark chapter 3, Jesus is just starting his ministry, and a group of his followers come up to him and say, hey, your family's here, and there's a problem. Your family is actually trying to put the brakes on what you're doing. In fact, Jesus' family comes out in Mark chapter 3 and publicly says, while Jesus is performing miracles, don't mind him. He's, he's out of his mind. His exact English translation is he's out of his mind. And a couple of verses later, it, it names that, it doesn't name them, but it says Jesus' mother and brothers tried to stop him, tried to stop his ministry. This is amazing. It's amazing if you just think about it. That, I mean, they've, they've grown up with you know, like God boy here. Like, wouldn't you know him and believe him and understand what he's trying to do? And yet they, the people closest to Jesus, don't even believe in Jesus. But take it one step further, that we have in all likelihood James trying to stop his own brother's ministry in Mark chapter 3, which is probably about three years before Jesus died, and now 10 or 15 years later, writing a letter to early Christians saying, this is what it means to grow to maturity in faith in this man. What changed in James's life to go from being literally a roadblock in his brother's ministry to being his brother's biggest fan? What, what has to change in your heart and your mind? Hold on to that thought. We're going to come back to it towards the end. Secondly, notice how James refers to himself. If you have a Bible open, you can look there. If you have a program, you can look here. The, very thir the third word in our English translation, how does he start? James, this is who I am, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus the Messiah. Now, if you were Jesus' brother or sister, and you're trying to establish credibility, and you're writing a letter to people trying to basically say, like, listen to what I have to say because I know what I'm talking about, and you were Jesus' brother or sister, how do you start your letter? Here's how I start it. Chris, Jesus' brother. Of course, like, I grew up with the guy. We played outside in the yard together. We went to high school together. Like, I watched him grow up. I know a thing or two about this guy. Wouldn't you? Notice how James starts. James a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the Greek word there isn't servant. The Greek word, and if you're following your Bible, you may have a footnote that says this. The Greek word is slave. James, a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's a, that's a loaded word, I know. 
And because of our country's history, we, we, you just use the word slave and it brings up all sorts of questions. We don't have time to answer all of them, but let me just point out a couple things, because this is a loaded word. and We have to do a little bit of business with it. In fact, I think because it's so loaded, that's why a lot of translators translate it servant. They're trying to just avoid some of that tinderbox. But don't throw the baby out with the bathwater here. Let's just note a couple of things about ancient Roman slavery because it was, I'm not saying it was morally right or just, but it was different than American slavery. Ancient Roman slavery was often voluntary. People chose themselves to become slaves. It was often time-bound. In other words, it was a seven-year agreement and then you were free again afterwards. It was an economic decision. It was a way, if you didn't have the money you needed for something, of earning money in just a more rigid system. That's not to say, again, that it wasn't wrong or abusive, to be sure. We know from other ancient authors that there was abuse in ancient slavery, but it was not as brutal as American slavery. In fact, by some estimates, maybe half of Rome's population at some points were slaves. It was a very common, like an economic arrangement. And slave masters often entrusted their slaves with huge portions of their estate. Sometimes a slave was in charge of all of their master's estate. They, they, were, they were more of like the COO. <laughs> so we hear slave and it conjures up all these images. We don't have time to get all into what it was. Just know this, it wasn't always good, it wasn't always right, but it wasn't as bad as what we think as well. And James isn't offering commentary, obviously, on the American system. Just one, one more note. Okay, so any, I, I don't think I have to say this, but I'll say it just to be clear. Anytime anybody uses the Bible to say slavery is okay, that's, it. that's a wrong reading of the Bible. Okay, we clear on that? So that's not what we're saying here. Don't ever, and if anybody ever tells you that the Bible supports slavery, you say, no, it doesn't. And somebody who says that clearly hasn't really read their Bible. Okay, let's move on. James is not offering commentary on American slavery or even on the slave system. What he's doing is comparing culturally what it means to be a slave with what it means to be a free person. What's the difference between a slave and a free? In other words, he's, he's asking, Jesus uses some, this image, and Paul uses this image a lot as well. Do you see yourself first and foremost as a servant, dare I say, as a slave of God? Or do you see yourself first and foremost as a free person? He's really bringing to mind questions of freedom. What does freedom mean? What does it mean to be a freed man? Because a free person, think about it, a free person chooses for themselves what they're going to do with their time. You get to choose. I wake up in the morning and I decide I'm going to work, I'm staying home, I'm doing whatever. A slave has to do, by definition, what their master tells them to do. So in other words, James is asking, in your day-to-day life, do you set the terms or do you listen for God to set your terms? A free person works for their own benefit. They work to take care of themselves and take care of their family. A slave works for the benefit of their master. What they earn actually belongs to the master. James is asking this, in your work, who are you working for? Are you working for you? Are you working for your family, your whatever you call it, kingdom or empire or legacy, or are you working for your master? Are you working for the honor and the glory of God? 
even if I'd like, I'm, not, I'm not using work metaphor, like your actual work. I'm a salesperson. I'm a nurse. I'm a teacher. Do you do that work? Well, who do you do that work for? A free person takes care of themselves. They have to. The burden lies on them to take care of themselves. If I don't work, I can't pay for food. A slave is taken care of by their master. This was part of the economic arrangement, uh, especially in ancient times, that a master took care of the slave's physical needs. You, you were room and board, call it. So as you're thinking about your interaction, am I a free person or a slave? Am I praying some version of God, give me this day my daily bread? Insisting that God provides for my needs, even my physical needs. Or, like a free person, does everything rest on your shoulders? James is asking, do you prefer for everything to rest on your shoulders? Because at least you have some measure of control that way. One more difference. A free person has only their own resources to fall back on. A slave, if things go bad, can fall back on all the resources of their master. Think of it like almost an insurance. After all, a, slave who's well, a person who's wealthy enough to have slaves is wealthy enough to have a big emergency fund, call it. As you think about the, the big picture of your life, do you, do you actually believe that God has everything you need to take care of you? Or does your future rest on you? Does your future depend on you? You see what James is doing? When he uses this word slave, he's contrasting it very intentionally with a free person, and he's saying this. In your interactions with God, in your spiritual life, as you're growing to maturity, do you see yourself as a free person, independent, independent of God, so to speak, or as somebody who is dependent? Am I living like a slave or am I living like a free person? This is a poignant question. It's, it was poignant then. It is still, it's a loaded question today because we live in a country where we take pride in our freedom, right? Land of the free. Freedom isn't free. It's a free country. Like we have all of these expressions that just talk about freedom. I suggest to you that post-enlightenment modernity this individualistic mindset that has come mostly out of the Enlightenment and that saturates our culture, even still today, has corrupted our understanding of freedom. Let's, let's just take a quick look at that. Because we think, we hear the word freedom, and we think freedom means I get to do what I want when I want. And in some sense it does, although that's, that's a, a pretty base, a base level of freedom. I can do what I want, what I want, and don't you dare get in my way because you're infringing on my freedom. You're infringing on my rights. That's how we think of freedom, right? And in fact, we become, we get so wrapped up in this that we often use the term freedom, the word freedom, to justify being offensive or cruel or mean because it's my freedom and I'm going to protect my freedom. If you think that's what freedom is, you Frankly, you've bought into a lie. True freedom, and this is what we're going to see this morning, true freedom is the freedom to deny yourself in order to serve something or someone greater than you. 
In other words, put it this way. Who's more truly free? The person who claims, I'm free to do what I want, when I want, how I want, and don't get in my way. Or the person who says, I could do this, but I'm willing to lay all of that aside to serve someone else, to serve somebody who's more important than me. Who's actually more free and who's a slave to a certain mindset? Who's more free of those two? We'd say, of course, it's the person who lays aside. How do we know that, by the way? Well, let me ask you this. Who in history has been more free than the Son of God? I defy you to name somebody who's been more free than the Son of God. You won't find them. And what did he do with his freedom? He voluntarily used his freedom to set aside that very freedom to take on extra constraints and limitations. You thought about this? Jesus, God, God the Son, God, infinite, became finite. Limitless became limited. No boundaries became constrained by boundaries. Totally free became a servant. Jesus laid aside his freedom in order to serve you and me. What freedom is that? Greater love, he said, has no one than this, that he defend his rights. Right? Oh, greater love has no one than this. No, that he lay, than he lay down his life for his friends. Contrast that with don't tread on me. Who's more free? The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Contrast that with freedom isn't given, only taken. Who's more free? In Philippians 2, Paul puts it this way, talking about Jesus. He did not consider equality with God. That's to say, he's God. He has all the infinite limitless freedoms. He didn't consider equality with God something to be exploited, but he made himself nothing, taking the nature of a, here's that word, servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The, the Christ example of freedom, the godly example of freedom is the humility to not exploit your freedom. True freedom embraces limits. True freedom sees itself as a servant. You see that? See, we insist that you can, you can take my freedom over my dead body. But Jesus said, I will give you freedom over my dead body. That's the difference that James is drawing out here. Uh, John Donne, great, great poet. He's becoming my favorite poet. Uh, Sonnet 15. I, it's so good. I printed it in your programs. If you're online, you just look up John Donne, Sonnet 15. Um, here's how it ends. It's just brilliant. I'm going to have to read it a couple times because the more I've been reading this, the more it sinks in, the magnitude of it. He says, "'Twas much that man was made like God before." Man was made in the image of God, Genesis 1. "'Twas much that man was made like God before, but that God should be made like man, much more. "'Twas much 
that man would be made like God before. But that God would be made like man much more. God used his freedom to set aside his freedom to offer us true freedom. This is what James is really keying in on. And he says, knowing that he has been set free, he knows, he knows Jesus. He's his brother. He knows. And what does he say? How does he start? James, a servant, a slave. What does it look like to think of ourselves as servants or even slaves, properly speaking, of course, of God? Or do you insist on being a free person under nobody else's rule? Does your freedom, you could ask it this way, does your freedom cause you to take a higher view of yourself? Or does it cause you, like it caused John the Baptist, to say, he must increase, I must decrease? Who's a mature Christian? Someone who sees themselves not as a free person in the sense that freedom means I do what I want, when I want. A free person, a mature Christian, is someone who grows in the understanding I belong to him. I'm his servant. Remember how we said that the spirit of humility will pervade all of James. Here it is, right here. James, a servant. This begs at least, at least one more question. There's a lot more, and we just don't have time to get into all of them. I wish we did. Um, I told you we were going to take it. Like, I'm preaching on one verse this morning. Really, kind of one word. <laughs> we'll, we'll pick up, I promise. It won't be this slow the whole time. One, one question, though, because we said James is all about growth to mature. How do I become a more mature Christian? How do I grow in faith? How do I get there? How do I get humble? <laughs> How do I do that? How do I become more mature? Because every one of us, whether you, whether you feel like you're mature or not, like every one of us has room, room to grow. I want to grow in maturity, Chris, in humility. How? How do I do that? Um, you're not going to like the answer. It's slow. Uh, the, the better answer is, I, I don't know. In fact, none of us knows. How does a, how does a plant grow? Like, what does a plant do? If, if, you, if you're a gardener, you planted your tomatoes this summer, you planted them right around Memorial Day probably, what did you do to make your plants grow? Well, you watered them and you made sure they're planted in sunlight. What did your tomato plant do to grow? Not much. Arguably nothing. There, there's just, there's nutrients in the soil that it happens to take it and there's sunlight and there's water and, it, and in the right conditions, the plant just kind of inevitably grows, but the plant can't engineer that. It's not all that different with us. In fact, if we, uh, so quick skip ahead. In, in uh, chapter 1, verse 18, James is going to say this. He said, God chose to give us all new birth. Maturity grows after God, so you're born and then you grow in maturity. It's, it's the same in John 3. Remember, Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. What? What did you do to be born? You remember? Can you remember back that far? We've been thinking about this because, like, maybe this afternoon a baby is going to be born. I don't know. Hopefully not. That I'm, I'm going to stop right there. A baby is going to be born, born to our family very soon. What does our little baby have to do? 
What is she going to have to do to be born? Does she get to choose? What's even more humble, like, Jamie doesn't actually get to choose when the baby gets, and I know she wishes she could choose when the baby would be born. No, it just, it just happens. It just, we don't know. It's a mystery. At some point, her body will just decide, like, now's the time, and out comes the baby. That easy, right? Like, we don't, there is so much mystery to this. Jesus keys in on the same idea in another passage. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. He says, the wind blows where it will. Been following the herd. We're going to have some wind this afternoon, they say. Does, do you get to control where the wind blows? No, of course not. That's why we're, we all have our eyes glued, because if we could control it, we would make it blow somewhere else, out in the ocean, where it's not going to affect anybody and where none of us would lose power. The wind just does what it's going to do. There are things, even in our growth to maturity, and I might say especially in our growth to maturity, that we're just not going to understand. That we actually can't engineer or manipulate or control. If you could control your growth, then your growth would be up to you and not up to God. And God wouldn't be God, you would be. Part of the growth to maturity is accepting the mystery and the wonder. Why? Well, if you think about it, if you could grow yourself to maturity, what would happen? You put in the hard work, you become more mature, you become very humble. You become very aware that you put in the hard work to become humble and mature. And all of a sudden, you've lost it all, right? It's the person who tells you how humble they are. The person who says, you know, my humility is really my best feature. (laughs) Of course not. If it's not up to you, if some of it is just mystery and wonder and the Holy Spirit working in a way that we don't understand but he does, what does that breed? That breeds true humility. That's somebody who's, like, you ask somebody who's, are you a Christian? One person might say, well, of course I'm a Christian. Of course I am. Well, why? Well, I, whatever answer they give, it's going to have something to do with, with their agency, their control. I do this. I've been going to church. I have this and this. I, 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 I. James says that, in a sense, the mature Christian is someone you ask, are you a Christian? And they say, yeah. Can you believe it? Like it's a, the more we grow, the, almost the more our faith becomes a joke. Like, I just, I don't understand it. I don't earn it. I didn't deserve it. I can't do anything to engineer it. Sometimes I didn't even, I wasn't even looking for God. He just found me. Can you believe it? So, of course, I'm I'm his servant, you see? Like, I just, I can't believe what he did for me, and I just, I want to give myself to him completely. Not because I'm entitled to anything, but he's entitled to it. You see that difference? It's the difference between entitlement and wonder, entitlement and humility. Christian maturity often means humbly admitting, like, I I have no idea. (laughs) And continuing to walk with God through that. We're going to flesh that out. The next time we look at James, if that's next week or the week after that, we're going to see, he says, consider it pure joy. 
when you experience trials of many kinds? Is your God big enough that he's still good even when everything is really hard? Our faith is a faith of paradox. You know what a paradox is? Paradox is something that seems like a contradiction, but actually it isn't. See, we think growing up means becoming less dependent. We're going to see in James, and God wants us to know that growing up actually becomes, means becoming more dependent. We think freedom means freedom from constraints. God is saying in his upside-down economy, freedom means embracing constraints. We think, we think our faith depends on us. In God's upside-down economy, he says, no, 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 no. It depends on me. Maturity, in some paradoxical way, means growing to a greater dependence, a greater need, greater limitations on Jesus Christ because he has done everything. We're going to take just a minute after we pray and reflect. As we do that and reflect silently, I would urge you, uh, just ask God, God, will you grow me? We said, (laughs) the plant can't make itself grow. A kid can't make themselves grow. Like, they just grow. There's something external. We know it's God. So would you ask God, God, I can't grow myself. Will you grow me to maturity and wisdom? Let's pray. Lord, would would you grow us? Help us to see the paradox of faith. That where we want to think everything depends on us, we know it all depends on you. That as we think growing up means becoming more independent, it actually means becoming more dependent. Give us humility and wisdom. Help us to persevere through hard times. Give us healthy perspectives on wealth. Help us to pursue wisdom. And Lord, make us humble at all costs. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.